holy shit, these are real life SVU episodes. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And don't listen if you don't want you fucking prick. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to SU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. Welcome to our first intermish since like season two, right? Yeah. But this was too good not to share, and we wanted to share it with everybody because it's super important. So initially, Chris Pedretti, who we can't say enough about how amazing she is, but she is a listener. Of the first sh- of all, <laughs> first of all, this amazing bad bitch reached out to us. Yeah, which we were like, "What? What are you doing? What?" Oh my god! Oh, so she's a, a listener to the pod. Shout out, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But she was like, "Hey, you guys, there's this episode, season twenty, episode twelve of SVU called Dear Ben, and it's based on the Golden State Killer. I am a survivor of the Golden State Killer, and I would love to talk to you guys." And we're like, "Holy shit!" So we were kind of going back and forth about like, do we cover the episode and then do a chaser and then have Chris on? And we're gonna cover that when we get there. Like the main focus of this was to be Chris and survivors and yeah and all of that was kind of like what our focus was gonna be because she's doing fucking awesome stuff for survivors now yeah so i've got this chaser here to tell you guys all about the golden state killer and then we're following it with an interview that we did with chris pedretti i could have talked to her all fucking day i know we just hung on her every fucking word you guys she's a shining beacon of light she is Mm-hmm. And a total MILF. She is. <laughs> I know. I always say this where I'm just like, oh my God, there was so much information. There was so much to read and so many resources. I couldn't stop reading about it. There's there are so many players involved and there it's it's decades and decades of work on top mm. of the crimes and everything that that went into this entire story. And I told Chris this too. I'm like, dude, I am still tinkering with this fucking chaser. And I need to just stop because there there's a lot of places that you can I'll be gone in the dark documentary is really great. There's the I'll be gone in the dark podcast, which is really great. And then they have more in-depth interviews with people. Let's do this. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to set it up like a surprise like I do sometimes where it's like, boom, and we got him, and this is who it is. I'm just threading it through. I feel like everybody knows everything about this case just because it blew up. But prior to 2013, and then again in 2016 when it really blew up, like nobody was looking for this. Like this wasn't a zeitgeist fucking case, you know, like Zodiac and uh, all these other serial killers. Okay. So are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, April 24th, 2018, in suburban Sacramento, California, county sheriffs knocked on the door of 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo. Throughout his life, D'Angelo was known as... Boo! (laughs) Okay, go ahead. All right. I'm glad we got that out of the way and we know what side of the fence you're on. (laughs) Throughout his life, D'Angelo was known as a husband, father of three, grandfather, Navy veteran, and police officer. But on this day, he was being arrested on 12 murder charges, later to be up to 13. Authorities believed they had finally caught the man who had become known as the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo had many names before Golden State Killer was given to him by true crime writer Michelle McNamara. In 2007, she became obsessed with this case and researched it, studied it, collaborated with others on it, literally in 
until the day she died in April of 2016. If you haven't watched the HBO docuseries, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, do that or read her book of the same name if you're better than me. JK, <laughs> both. Do both. Her work really propelled this case into the public light and combined with DNA technology and so, so, so much behind the scenes investigating and like-minded obsessives, she helped solve one of the furthest reaching worst crimes ever committed in the history of our country. This guy, this guy went decades. I mean, the fact that they fucking caught him before he died, yeah. beautiful. I'm glad that he didn't die because I love that his last years are like mm -hmm. in fucking prison. And the survivors got to give their impact statements and got to look at him and go, fuck you. Yeah. D'Angelo was born on November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York. There are claims that he was witness to the brutal rape of his sister as a kid and that he was also terribly abused by his father, which is just some backstory. I'm not going into detail with that or giving him any excuses for who he became. But like Gabe always says, explanation, not an excuse. He moved around a lot as a kid with his family because his father was an army sergeant. But then by the time he became a teenager, he got settled in California. He graduated with his GED from Folsom High School and immediately joined the Navy and served for 22 months during the Vietnam War. He returned home and went to school, earning a degree in criminal justice and police science. While he was in school, he got engaged to a nursing student, Bonnie Caldwell. The marriage didn't happen because Bonnie left him after he became abusive. Mm. Even after she broke it off, he threatened her with a gun to get her to marry him. Like, what the fuck? Jeez. And her dad was like, hey, Joe, fuck off or I'll kill you myself. So mm -hmm. he left. And her name comes up again in the future. Okay, so boom, he's a cop. From 1973 to 1976, D'Angelo, I'm, I'm trying to consolidate these details without spinning out too much. So I'm sorry if I'm like, okay, he's a cop, but... Okay. From 1973 to 1976, D'Angelo was in Exeter, California, working in the burglary unit. Okay. Now feels like an appropriate time to tell you about the Visalia Ransacker. Between 1974 and 75, the Visalia Ransacker had committed over 100 burglaries. The MO of these crimes were very telling. The burglar hopped fences and traveled through backyards and alleyways. There was a sophisticated tool used to pry open doors or windows. There would be multiple escape routes made prior to to entering the homes. You know, if somebody was coming in, they they knew everywhere they could get out. Mm -hmm. The intruder would place dishes or bottles against doors to give warning if somebody were to be coming. And yeah. there were no fingerprints ever found because this person wore gloves. Mm -hmm. This guy's a cop. Pretty informed person committing these burglaries. Mm -hmm. This was later on, but this brings to mind, there was an interview I listened to with Carol Daly. She was a detective on the case and she was talking about how they didn't connect so many of these crimes, especially these earlier ones involving burglary, because of the profile already created for a burglar. Because a lot of times he wouldn't steal like major things of value. It would be like women's clothes strewn all over the house and, you know, smaller personal items and stuff would be taken, you know, maybe like one earring, a pair of cufflinks, whatever. Mm-hmm which those kinds of crimes would be associated with a minor criminal, a juvenile. So yeah. he doesn't fit the profile at this point. He was doing this so incessantly, he committed as many as 12 in one day. Jesus. Sometimes he would take weapons, ammo, shit like that. Mm -hmm. On one of these many, many occasions, on September 11th, 1975, he was caught wearing a ski mask by journalism professor Claude Snelling as he attempted to abduct Snelling's 16-year-old daughter, Beth. The masked man shot Snelling to death before disappearing into the night. Jesus. That's thought to be his first murder. Mm -hmm. Police were closing in, and by December, the Visalia ransacker had just disappeared. Burp. 
let's cut back to D'Angelo's personal life. In 1973, D'Angelo married Sharon Huddle. They would go on to have three daughters. D'Angelo also served on the police force in Exeter. In fact, he was promoted to sergeant in 1976 and was in charge of the Exeter PD Joint Attack on Burglary Program. Jesus Christ. This guy's a burglary expert. Yeah. He also worked for the Auburn PD, that is, until July of 1979 when he was caught shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent, which I know this isn't the point, but I'm like, what the fuck is dog repellent and why would someone want that? Uh, If they're sneaking around people's backyards, yeah. I know, but I don't like that it exists because dog repellent... Is that just mace? Are you just macing dogs? Yes. So he gets fired. All right. You can't be a cop if you're caught fucking shoplifting, apparently. Around the same time D'Angelo began his short career at the Auburn PD, a string of terrible crimes started in the Sacramento area by someone who came to be known as the East Area Rapist. Mm-hmm. Up until 1978, rape was considered a misdemeanor in California with a one-year statute of limitations. Okay. That's just absolutely okay. I mean, it shows the value of the people this is perpetrated on. You know what I mean? And women couldn't even get credit cards then, I don't think, right? Um, God, when was it? Was it 70? Well, it was around there. It was probably ar- along the same time because it was switched from a misdemeanor to a felony in 1978. And that was largely because of the women's movement. You know, there's marching and there's like, we're people, you know? Yeah. So I think hey, I, we're it, humans, it, you know? yeah. it kind of all went together. But even when it was switched to a felony, <laughs> The statute of limitations was only three years. Also, I really fixated on Carol Daly after we talked to Chris. Dude, if this lady wasn't fucking amazing, she is so incredible. They need to do a series with her as a main character. Like, what was that fucking one with Woody Harrelson that you watched all the time? True Detective. Oh, yeah. She needs a season of True Detective just based on her. Okay, this lady. Look up a picture of Carol Daly right now. Look up a picture. Google Carol Daly 70s. Also, it was 1974. Oh, okay. So before it's time. Carol Daly. The one with the gun? Yes. It's a black and white. It's a little her with it. Yes. Look at her. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's like, first of all, she's like a Bond gal, but I don't even want to like minimize her to that point. She was a bad bitch. Okay. This woman was, first of all, the only female detective who was consistently working the East Area rapist cases. She was oftentimes Mm -hmm. a first responder to these calls. She kept a wig on her nightstand so she could be put together and out the door in 15 minutes to get to a crime scene. That's just like one of many, many things. She was so victim forward, survivor forward, keeping in touch with people, never stopping. She also had a way with victims that really was before her time. There were things in police protocol when you would go to a scene, the kind of questions they would ask and how they would handle Mm -hmm. the victim. Well, and her just being a woman in general that's a detective is huge. You know, that's some pioneer paving the way shit right there. Yeah. I mean, I got to watching like every interview that I could find with her and everything because it was after we talked to Chris and Chris had recounted things that were said to her, which you'll hear in the interview. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately for her, Carol Daly was not the responding detective on her case. She didn't get to meet her till much later. But so she responded to so many of them. Case after case after case, this shit kept popping up. The MO for these crimes were very similar. This person who had clearly staked out the area and the victim would break into the house through a window or sliding glass door. He would target women and girls who were alone in their homes. Oftentimes they'd be asleep. So he'd wake them with threats of killing them, tie them up, usually with shoelaces, then gag them with ripped up towels and rape them repeatedly over long stretches of time. Mm. Then he would hang out in the victim's homes for sometimes 
hours. He would leave them tied up, go get food from their kitchen, drink beer. He'd rummage through their shit and he would periodically come back and assault them over and over and over. He could often be heard talking to himself. Victims recounted many things that he had said, you know, things about, you know, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them. Uh, One of the occasions somebody recounted him saying, I hate you, Bonnie. Is Bonnie's that first? Bonnie's the the woman who left him. Yeah. And another thing that he would do, there would be voicemails and there would be phone calls of somebody just saying fucked up shit, just breathing heavily. They would get hang up calls. They would get crank phone calls. He would break into these houses before when nobody was there to get a layout of the house. So by the time he got there, he would know who everybody was in the house. By the time the victim was woken up in the night or surprised by him all of a sudden being there, they were the only one who was new to what was happening. These were all thought out crimes. Yeah. Each attack became so steadily exact to the one prior. Carol's captain and lieutenant questioned her interview techniques and accused her of asking leading questions. They were like, girl, there's no way all of these are this similar. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to record the next few interviews because we know that they're mm-hmm. coming and see how these interviews are going. And then they did and they only recorded a couple because they were like, holy shit, these aren't leading questions. This is just that consistent. Yeah. Eventually he shit. moved on to attacking couples and he would have a woman. He would do a lot of the same things, except it would be to couples. Didn't they say there was town hall meetings and stuff? You know, and some guys were like, well, he's not attacking men. He must be afraid of men. And then he immediately started. Yes. So that's when they started to think that he was there or something, right? Yeah. There was like a, a really intense task force there were so many people that had very specific jobs. I think in the end, it added up to over $10 million or something that it ended up costing them. But it, but there was so much manpower happening. But yeah, when things would get out into the public, that comment had been made and then he started attacking couples. A challenge maybe. So he would break into these people's homes. He would have a woman tie up her significant other and he would stack plates on the husband or male partner. Just in case they'd try to move, he'd be aware. So if he was in another room and he heard crashing plates. Yeah. By February of 1978, there had been 30 rapes reported that fit this profile. Well, then a young Rancho Cordova couple, Kate and Brian Maggiore, were walking their dog on the evening of February 2nd. Okay. There was a confrontation in the street resulting in the couple being shot to death. I couldn't find anything about the dog, Gabe. Mm. I assumed that you had asked, so I I did look, but... I thought about it. I feel like if something would have happened to the dog, it would have said it in some article or something, but investigators always had a feeling that this person who killed them was the East Area Rapist because multiple attacks had been committed in the exact area that the Maggiores were walking that night, like in that exact neighborhood. So it was speculated that they may have seen something that led to him killing them. Oh, sure. Yeah. 20 more rapes followed their murder. 50 rapes and two murders. Like, think about the number of lives just at this point that this person, this monster, had affected. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't have this count lined up at the time because they weren't connecting everything. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just in one area. He was hitting Sacramento and all of these surrounding areas. Stockton, Modesto, Davis, Concord, San Ramon, San Jose, Danville, just crisscrossing all across Central and Northern California, all over the place. These are the days of police departments, one, not communicating with each other. 
So again, information wasn't being shared. So every new jurisdiction that he hit, it would be a whole new investigation. Mm -hmm. So this big task force that Sacramento had didn't do any good outside of their territory. Yeah. And some definitely tried. After the first Stockton attack, Carol Daly went down and interviewed the victim. And the Stockton police didn't fucking like that. And she was told she couldn't do it anymore because she was in Sacramento. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there were also other things that interfered, like the way police communicated, the way different jurisdictions would communicate with each other. It was some form of police telegraph kind of thing. So they were difficult to read and it didn't help with the little bit of communicating they were doing with each other. The East Area Rapist quit his streak abruptly in 1979. So police knew one of three things happened. He was arrested for something else and was in jail. He died or he moved because a serial criminal this disturbed and this uh, frequent Frequent. isn't going to just be like, done. Mm -hmm. Well, D'Angelo had moved to Southern California And this is where he began setting out to kill his victims. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bunny trail too much, but Kim Stewart, another awesome female detective, was a patrol cop on the Santa Barbara PD. She was investigating a lot of rapes and she was like, oh, my God, there's so many rapes, you guys, to these other cops. And they were like, it's a college town. So that's just part of it. And she Mm -hmm. thought it was odd. Regardless, she thought it was odd. Then she happened to find out about multiple murders that had been swept under the rug. Uh, She wasn't supposed to know about these murders. She she stumbled across this information and was like, what the fuck, you guys? I didn't know about these. The department claimed they found the dude and he was dead. So don't worry about it. But it didn't take much for her to realize that it was more about the community image than anything else. I mean, they're in fucking Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a really nice area. The whole idea was kind of like, her interpretation of it anyway was it would be a shame for it to get out that violent crimes were happening in our nice little community. Mm-hmm. She starts looking into them more and realizes that not only are there a ton of rapes and these crazy murders, but there's also a lot more prowling and breaking and entering being reported. Mm-hmm. But then she hit a dead end. She asked to see the murder books, which is what they called their files, you know, about these different cases. And she wanted to see the murder books. And they were like, no, the case is closed. Leave it alone. Because they claim they found the guy. He was in Mexico or whatever. And he was dead. Okay. You know, and you can put a pin in that. So fast forward. It's 1994. Cold case investigator Paul Holes begins chipping away at the East Area Rapist. I mean, the case files were just mountains. Then, in 2001, a huge break happens. Fucking science. DNA connected the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. It's the same fucking guy, okay? And I'm picking through all of these slow connecting things, and then all of a sudden they get this break where they're like, oh my god, we can look at the similarities between all this, and then pretty soon you've got this person was in this area, and then this... I mean, it's... Your pool is still huge of suspects, right? But it's where you get to start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. it's like putting together a thousand piece puzzle but the puzzle is uh, the sky on a clear day you know what i mean it's just so many little things adding up to the next right yeah so as they piece these crimes together it looked to be true that his crimes spanned from sacramento to orange county that's an area of over 400 miles of california just a huge broad span of locations this is what got him his final all-encompassing moniker of the golden state killer given to him by michelle mcnamara in her 2013 los angeles Mm -hmm. magazine featured article in the footsteps of a killer so let's go back to her for a moment michelle mcnamara researched and worked with investigators armchair detectives retired cops lawyers social workers all of these people to keep this 
momentum going. And she was real tight with Paul Holes and was able to, by his account, basically be a partner to him with fresh eyes on the whole thing. Mm. Like I had said up top, Michelle McNamara passed away in her sleep from an accidental overdose in April of 2016. And this was a tragic loss for her family and friends and anyone she touched. So I was thinking about it. And early on, there were so many occasions that connections could have been made Mm -hmm. that were missed, especially with the lack of communication and lack of technology. But now in the wake of her sudden death, a lot of things started connecting. This is where I'm going with this. As we know, Michelle McNamara was married to very famous comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. He's awesome. Mm. Because of that, her death was much more highly publicized and recognized than it may have been without that aspect. Not to minimize the work she did, but that's what's going to get you on, you know, in, in front of way more eyes. This gave opportunity to share her life's work with the public. You know, people want to know about this woman all of a sudden, people that may have not known in the past. And it really shed a ton of light on these crimes and this investigation. Just two months later, in June of 2016, with the push from District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, the FBI announced a national campaign to ID the Golden State Killer and offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to his capture. Mm -hmm. The the big push was DNA. This is how we're going to get this guy. Thousands of tips came in. The leads they ran down for over 40 years were so wildly extensive to begin with, even getting to that point. Thousands of suspects, and not one of them, not one of these suspects was Joe D'Angelo. They had such a small amount of DNA left from the attacks that it was crucial to get it right with the new technology they had access to. Mm -hmm. I mean, once they run through it, it's gone. Right. I was listening to this interview with Paul Holes. He was talking about the difficulty of making the decision to test DNA. Like, okay, are we going to use this or are we going to wait on it and see if the technology improves? Because, you know, we have this Q-tip. It was cut and then it was cut again and then it was cut again. And then we're hoping we can get like the tiny amount that maybe touched the sides of this tube and, you know, just how crucial it was that they got it right. And the DNA had been run through CODIS so many times with no hits, which CODIS is the National FBI Data Bank for DNA profiles. And they get to run through like all the convicted offenders across the states, right? Which is very helpful. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing. Nothing came up. Okay, so in 2017, the team led by Paul Holes decided they were going to simplify it and use something that so many of us have used. Mm -hmm. We all know 23andMe, Ancestry.com. In short, they're genealogical tools used to find family, create family trees, research family history. People use them every day. These particular resources, 23andMe and Ancestry.com, required a court order. There's a lot of eyebrows raised with this tactic that was used and as it continued to be used. And it was a little sketch how they made it so that they didn't have to tell where their information came from and then it came out and then it was a whole like why are you guys hiding that you're doing this Mm -hmm. i'm not getting super deep into that but just a tiny bit here so there were other resources that were maybe a little bit muddier on the legality aspect of having access to all these people's dna Mm -hmm. and the usage of these has since brought some heat like i had said for violating privacy to genetic material most policies across the board of these things have become stricter so it's more difficult for this kind of investigation to use these resources these resources have solved so many 
crimes, so many cold cases, like mm-hmm. well-known, you're never going to figure it out, cold cases. But I mean, they were fucking desperate, dude. Like I read somewhere that they had a, was it Paul Holes? Somebody had a body exhumed, like a five-year dead body exhumed because they were that close to being like, this person is the Golden State Killer. I mean, that's that's the level of hunting down they were doing. And Paul Holes said this about the decision to use these sites as a means to find their suspect. Quote, we were entirely confident that it would pass legal muster, but we understood that there could be a fallout in terms of public perception. So it's a trade-off. So the FBI went to MyHeritage, Family Tree DNA, and GEDmatch and assessed millions of customers and just started chipping away. They got a pool of relatives matching the genetic profile they had sent in, and they slowly ruled out suspects based on location, age, gender, etc. The matches were of distant relatives, so that shit tree branches out exponentially, making for really, really tedious work. I mean, thousands of people. Mm -hmm. But then in February of 2018, civilian genealogy expert Barbara Ray Venter found a closer match than they had up until this point. A second cousin. Mm. What? A month later, the FBI visited a suspect's sister to get her to volunteer her DNA, and the brother was cleared. But from that, they found that there were six possible cousins that could fit this profile, and only one of them had blue eyes, which had been consistently reported about the East Area Rapist. They had felt like they'd been this close in other instances, so they tempered their expectations with it. They Mm -hmm. surveilled Joseph D'Angelo for 10 days, grabbed some of his DNA, and it fucking matched Mm. on April. April 24th, 2018, Sacramento County Sheriffs were at the door of D'Angelo's Citrus Heights home. Okay. How did they get his DNA again? Just like his trash or something? There were a couple different things that they had done. One of the things is they followed him to a Hobby Lobby and taken DNA off of the handle of his car after he had gone to the store. Mm -hmm. And then they also were like, hey, garbage man, what's up? Can we dig through that fucking trash? And he was like, yeah. I think it was like a Mm -hmm. tissue or something. Something discarded uh, with his DNA on it as well. Sweet. Sacramento County sheriffs were at the door of D'Angelo's Citrus Heights home. After his arrest, D'Angelo started really performing, for lack of a better way to put it. In a confession-ish statement after his arrest, he said, quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all of those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. That is setting up his competency, right? Mm -hmm. Then he shows up to his arraignment a few days later in a fucking wheelchair, looking like a feeble old man. Mm -hmm. And then his barely audible, meek voice when he makes his plea on June 29th. He wants them to see him as not competent and not physically able, right? Right, yeah. Cut to him on camera, in his cell, walking around, climbing on his bunk, fucking exercising. It's creepy to see. His dexterity, his physical ability, uh, his flexibility, like, it's all an act. Just an act. Yes. Yeah. In a press conference, DA Anne-Marie Schubert showed these videos and called him, quote, the definition of a sociopath. Yeah. His argument was nothing. It was it was nothing. This guy's a fucking piece of shit. A deal was made. In exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, Joseph D'Angelo pled guilty to 26 combined counts of murder and kidnapping and admitted to 61 other violent crimes that had run out on their statutes of limitations. So all of the rapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After two years of court proceedings, D'Angelo was sentenced to 20 26 life sentences at 75 years old. And as of February 2021, D'Angelo is housed in protective custody at California State Prison in Corcoran. Hmm. Good. Good. 
I'm so glad he was alive. They caught him. Me too. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna take you guys right into the interview we did with Chris. We have a very special, amazing guest that I can't even make eye contact with. I know. We're so super grateful to be here with survivor, activist, mm-hmm. bad bitch, dog mom, glowing beacon of light, Chris <laughs> Pedretti. Woo! Woo! I wish yay. we had like clap people to clap. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe has been begging to have like a soundboard thing for years. And I'm like, no, we're not a morning radio show. <laughs> I just imagine her like pressing her clap button. Like, wee, wee, wee. Yeah. Pew, 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 pew. Well, then you need a you need a laugh track. <laughs> yeah, then, we right? definitely yeah. do. Yeah. I think we laugh pretty hard at our own jokes enough. So <laughs> I've heard more than a few times. I listen to everything you guys do. And Aww. I'm always hearing, I think it is Gabe. That says this stuff. It's like, did you notice that I just said something funny? You're not responding. <laughs> yeah. Your laugh didn't sound like it was funny. And then you, right? Yeah. So that's when you can push the laugh track. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Think, yeah. We've both we've both um, begged for laughs in the last twenty years between the two of us. But like, did you hear that? We'll be in a crowd. Did you, you know what that? though? I would rather it be genuine than it be frequent. That's all I care about. Yeah. 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 So, Chris, we really want to focus on what you're doing with the platform that you have hammer and nails built for yourself. But to start it off, if you wouldn't mind giving us some backstory on what initially brought you here. Yeah. So this goes decades back in uh, 1976. I was 15. And, you know, we lived in a pretty safe neighborhood. We didn't, you know, it's back in the day. Mm -hmm. Anyways, in California, um, where we went in when the streetlights went on, doors were never locked. You know, it just was a very safe environment. And uh, my parents had gone to a Christmas party. My sister had gone to work and my friend was over and, you know, like, oh, cool. Your parents are gone, right? Yeah. I'll hang out at your house for a while. Um, but then she had to go home to make Christmas cookies. This was on December 18th. And um, so she left. I popped a pizza in the oven and I played the piano back then. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to play the piano. I heard noises, but you know, young girls, we hear noises all the time. So Mm-hmm. I stopped and listened and it had stopped. So I kept playing. And then just really fast, like in a split second, there was a knife at my throat, you know, being growled at telling me if I made a noise, he would kill me. So what followed that was, you know, the next two or three hours of being tied, gagged, blindfolded, being threatened to be killed just over and over again. I won't go into too many details. So by the time that had ended, the the change had already happened. Mm. You know, like I was already starting to change who I was and how I saw the world, obviously. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, it was so bad at one point, you know, I tried to move and he'd be right in my ear telling me don't move but I thought he was gone he's so quiet tried it again said the same thing tried it again and he was like this is going to be your last day oh my god you try that you know shit again and this is it and that was not the first time this was all night long Mm -hmm. and it it actually got to the point and I think if there are survivors listening they're going to understand this where I didn't care anymore if I was going to be killed Mm -hmm. just didn't care like I'm done with this game right even at 15 so I rubbed off the blindfold, which is a big deal because there's no way I could have got it back on. Do you know what I mean? Like he was actually there still. Right. And I was able to get up and hop and check to make sure. And I knew, I knew 
full well that if he was there, I would die. And I was just like, Jesus, here I come. I was very religious. Mm. I, I hear you guys talk a lot about your background being religious. So yeah. I, I was as well. And he wasn't there, thank God. And then the police came and all of that kind of stuff. So 15. I don't think I said who it was. It was, I knew him as the East Area Rapist, but he had so many names. And the one that most people will be familiar with is the Golden State Killer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my God, dude. That started my journey. And I I don't know what's too much information and too little. So as much as you're comfortable with sharing. Okay. Yeah. Everything or nothing, whatever you're, yeah. Yeah. It's whatever you're comfortable with. (laughs) I kept that pretty G rated. Which, yeah, that's totally fine uh because it was that was not g-rated for me i was like it's not yeah well then i'm glad i kept it where i did so once this ends there's like okay here's the rest of my life the other side is the rest of your life and you didn't get to deal with it right away do you want to tell us about that a little bit yeah i i actually didn't deal with it for 42 years whoa so what happened was um so you know the police come Mm -hmm. i mean you know you're already in shock you already our, your, your world is upside down. So after that happened, that was the first time, you know, I'll say me and probably any other rape victim is victimized. The second time is when the police come. Mm. And that is why I do a lot of speaking with detectives now to share with them what a rape victim goes through. So it was really just give me the facts, only the facts. He wasn't mean, but he wasn't nice. He wasn't compassionate. And the terminology that they used then, and I don't think they do this. Remember, this is a long time ago, but like he wanted to know how big his penis was. Well, I'm 15. I've never had sex. I'm like, I don't know. I I don't. And so he compared it to a hot dog. Is it a a big chunky hot dog or is it a skinny hot dog? I hate hot dogs now. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> there was no explaining what's going on around you. You know, you're in your own home and I'll, I'll give you an example. Like they didn't ask me where I would like to be interviewed at. Right. right. So where I was interviewed at was one of the rooms I was actually raped in. Mm. So, you know, just being mindful. Right. Which I, I do believe we're making steps that way, but we live in a rape culture and yeah. people still are uncomfortable being compassionate, I guess. Uh huh. Anyway, so from there, off to the hospital. So a rape kit, you know, SVU, we watch it all mm-hmm. the time. I watch it like three times a day. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, Benny says, oh, you know, it sounds like you've been assaulted or whatever. And I, I, I really would like you to go to the hospital to be examined. Mm-hmm. Those girls in real life do not know what that means. Yeah, yeah. It's not examined like, let's take your temperature. How are you feeling? Right. That's Let's get on the table. spread your legs and everywhere you were touched or poked, we're going to do it again. And then for me, I don't think they do this anymore, but they put a huge magnifying glass all over my body. So, right. Like I'm young, I'm not comfortable showing my body. Like this was very traumatic. And so when I hear those things like on SVU or other people, I'm like, and I know it's not real, but you know, you're doing that victim such a disservice because they don't know what they're getting to, especially if they're young. Yeah. Yeah. They have no idea. They've never had a pap smear, right? Right. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then for me, where it might be different or the same for others, uh, on the way home, we didn't talk. My parents, my sister was there. We were holding hands and we were instructed to never talk about it. Not once to anyone. Mm -hmm. And we didn't. My sister and I didn't even talk to each other. And she's 17 and I'm 15. We're in the same house. Mm -hmm. So life went on like nothing ever happened. I went to church camp oh, wow. two days later. 
And then uh, five days later was Christmas and opened my presents, acted like a good girl. So those internal changes begin really quick and you're not a child. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hang out with my friends. And you know what? My friends didn't want to hang out with me. This was the bad house. Their parents didn't want to, wouldn't let them come over, but I'm not an adult. I don't have any experience being an adult. So I was just in limbo right? Yeah. Went to three different schools in one year after that happened because people were talking about me and I got kicked out of one because I was rebellious. Went to the third one. And then I found, you know, what saved me? Drugs. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, somebody gave me like, Hey, this will make you feel really good and alcohol. So, I mean, that didn't last very long, but the whole going through a trauma like that without any support, which is 100% what's led me to where I'm at right now is very traumatic. It's very isolating. It's very self-shaming. Yes. And you begin to see your body and yourself for some, everybody reacts different. I'm just talking about me as my body doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. Neither does my mind. Neither does my feelings. Nothing does. So there wasn't a lot of self-respect. I, you know, I was pretty promiscuous because that's all I knew. Like that's what a body is, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, three marriages later, I'm very happily married now, but yeah, it was a long journey until the day he got caught. So I will tell you who the hero is, is Anne-Marie Schubert, who was our district attorney. Mm. And she grew up in Carmichael area where I grew up during the time that he was attacking. Mm -hmm. And so she firsthand 100% understands the fear of this community. It's not just repeating, oh, people bought a lot of guns. She lived it. Yeah. And when she became district attorney, she said, I'm not letting this go. I'm going to catch this guy. I don't care if it's a needle in a haystack or whatever. So she formed a task force mm-hmm. and then got a hold of Paul Holm, whatever he was doing. But it's because of her doggedness that I believe he got caught. And she is a freaking hero to me. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't going to let it go. Yeah. She's like, we got him. I knew it was a, a needle in a haystack and we got him. And so she is amazing. Actually, I'm going to be doing two conferences with her coming up in April and May. May. She's just the most honest person. She will tell you how it is. You would love her. Yeah. She doesn't really care if she pisses you off. And she ran for, um, uh, what are those called? You know, in charge of all of California, the high prosecutor. I was going to say governor and then you said prosecutor. I'm like, I don't know. In charge of California. But it's the king, the king of California, right? The king of California. Yeah, the queen of California. California. Yeah. Anyway, she lost because she, you know, she's gay and she's like, I'm not hiding that. And she just wasn't going to apologize yeah. for anything. And she also wasn't going to apologize for not being a Republican or a Democrat. She's like, no, there's things on both sides. I am who I am. You wow. can look her up, but she's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. No, she's I a badass that. person along with uh, Carol Daly. Yeah. Have you heard of Carol Daly's name? No. Mm-mm. She's super badass. She is the original investigator. Okay. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, we, she's in her 80s and we all know her and she comes to my house and she helps me. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So this, you know, it was more than a job for her, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Because she was there every, every time there was a hearing, we would go to her house afterwards. So the victims could have private time without press listening mm. and she would have a big spread for us. Oh, wow. Holy yeah. shit. There's some really good stories out of this terrible story. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, go ahead. I, we, you were talking about like some of the shame and stuff that came with all that, that really touched me a lot, like not being able to talk about it and feeling like you were you know, worthless or whatever. Fast forward now, do you still, is there any part of you that still like struggles with that type of stuff? Mm. Yeah. And that isn't even a thing you have to tell no, me. No, no. Just, I can't. I, I don't know if it's that, but 
One thing I know for me and so many others is that we take cues from others. So if I'm talking about it and someone looks really uncomfortable, not compassionate, you guys are showing compassion. I'm talking uncomfortable, like, ugh this is too much. I got to go, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, then that will reinforce the shame that will reinforce the, the low self-worth and we stop. Oh, wow. we, and I say we, because in our group, I mean, we all do that. I just met with someone the other day. So she's like, I, I have to see the person I'm talking to so I can get the cues that I'm okay. Mm. So I would say that self-worth question is I don't feel unworthy, mm-hmm. but the fact that I'm still looking at others for their reactions tells me I'm still still not sure how far I can go. Just like I said to you, you asked me the questions because I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And, you know, in our culture, so many people, the majority don't have any experience with sexual assault. It's probably more than we know because we know only 25% of the people actually report for those reasons. Mm But um, because it's not spoken about, because no one talks about it, I can't expect anyone I'm talking to to even know how to support me. Mm-hmm. So now they're so uncomfortable. They might say something and maybe it triggers me. Like, for instance, Gabe, maybe you said that and I got a tear. You'd be like, oh, crap, went too far. Oh, sure. We're not going to talk about this anymore. Yeah. yeah. But having a tear is not a bad thing. It's a reaction. You know, I always tell people when I do a talk, like, don't be surprised if there's a little tear coming out. Like, I never know when it's going to come. Yeah. And it's okay. Don't stop and don't now treat me like I have a disease, the rape disease. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. See, that's a good, yeah. Cause it's we were, okay. we were all like, you know, we want to make sure we don't know what we're doing, obviously, but like, <laughs> if you feel what, have I said that like 500 million times? We, we don't know what we're doing. We're, we don't know what we're doing. We're two, we're, we're two piles of trash. <laughs> yeah. So if there's if there's questions that we're not asking because we're stupid and like are trying to like tiptoe around stuff, feel free to say anything. Yeah. You don't have to tell me to. Because on the other end, you know, you want to be respectful of someone and, you know, gentle. We don't have the same experience. And I don't want to be, I don't want us to be like exploitative of that shit yeah, either. Yeah. Or like the know? schadenfreude of. Oh, tell me all the fucked up, you know, like, no, yeah. that's, and, and so there's, there's a line that we're, I didn't even realize that you were dancing on a line too. That's, that's just, it's interesting Oh, always that, that you're gauging how much you share watching other people absorb it. Mm-hmm. That's new information for me. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't, I'm, I'm assuming because of your podcast and what the TV show is about, there's a lot of victims of sexual assault that watch SVU. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know why, but we do. I, I think they could all relate with what I'm saying. So don't, don't worry. Yeah. I'm telling you, I would not come on this podcast if I had sensitive mind fields out there that, that are going to blow at any time. I would not. Shit. And if you did ask, and I can't even imagine what it would be, I would say, yeah, let's not go there. Yeah. Okay. Edit that out. Cool. So no worries. The fact that you're asking the questions tells me that you are truly interested in the story. And I appreciate 100%. that. Yeah. That you, you bringing you. that up too, about being a survivor and watching a show like SVU, that I also found interesting because as someone who hasn't had the same experience, I'm like, it's hard enough for me to watch some of that stuff sometimes. You know, I'm always bitching about like, oh, great, this is kid shit. I can't fucking handle this. Yeah. And then you saying that it's not uncommon to be interested in that as well. I don't think so. Wow. I think it's really common. And I think because, okay, I don't know this, but just in my head, I didn't even think about it until now because that show does talk about it. Mm -hmm. That show does bring up people's feelings and they show how parents are shitheads and they show how 
someone says they're not going to testify because they're scared. They show how some people lock themselves in their apartments and don't want to ever come out again. Like they, they show all the realities that all those things really happen. The only thing that I, I hate, and you guys bring it up all the time, and I'm always happy when you do is that don't ever believe Benson or saves when they say we'll protect you oh yeah because they never do I didn't want to interrupt you but I was gonna I was gonna say well yeah but you know they'll protect them so it's totally fine right no I was like oh is she gonna say that everything is two blocks away (laughs) I know and the hundred blocks that was really funny (laughs) I was watching one last night actually that I had never seen which is weird because I think I've seen them all but um the guy that it was uh, the three Muslims. Oh, I don't know if it's as old as how far back where you are, but they have a restaurant mm-hmm. for, and they rape and kill one of the daughters. And the other one goes to the hospital, the mother, and then the father dies. Anywho, the brother was in there and he ran out because he was illegal. And Staves, no, it wasn't Staves, it wasn't. It was a Carici, is that his name? Oh, yeah, Carisi. Anyways, he's out there and he says, don't worry, I got you. You know, I'm going to be with you. And then the the guy gets stormed by ICE and they take him and he is deported Mm -hmm. within. And he was gay. And so he didn't want to go back home because they would kill him. And within like an hour after catching him, he was on a plane going back. And the family was so upset. Like, you promised. Which in that case, you can claim asylum. Like the whole Yeah, that whole thing is just. Anyway, I digress. Sorry. (laughs) I love the show so much, but geez. I love it so much, but there's so many fucking issues. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to go back to uh I, I would love to hear about your day on April 24th, 2018. So I was actually in LA at a work conference mm-hmm. by myself in a hotel room, and I get a call. And just to back up a little bit, I had already convinced myself that he was dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. So dead or in prison, but I thought he was dead because you just didn't hear anything, you know, about him or whatever. And so I got a call like at six in the morning telling me that he had been captured by Carol Daly, who doesn't even work for the sheriff's department, still taking mm-hmm. care of us. And then I got a call a little bit later from an mm-hmm. investigator and they couldn't spend much time with me because they had 50 people to call. Yeah. Got a lot of phone calls to make so that nobody was completely blindsided, but that blindsided me because I thought he was dead. So they just like raised this monster from the dead. Mm. I remember standing there, phone in my hand and just not being able to move. I went completely into shock and I'm by myself Mm -hmm. and this sounds silly, but it's the God honest truth. I was like, okay, what do I do? Do I go to bed? Just hang up the phone or I go back to bed like it didn't happen. Or I do have training. So maybe I should take a shower first and get ready, then go back to bed. And then it was, no, I should go to bed first. And then take a shower. Like I was everywhere. My husband calls me and he's like, Chris, Mm -hmm. they caught him. I was like, I know. He's like, are you okay? I couldn't speak. He said, Chris, I can't see you. You have to talk. And I, I just couldn't. And then finally I decided to go to training, tell my boss. And I've never told anyone this really. I mean, you know, here and there, but this is a person I don't even know. It's a work related thing. And I'm shaking. She's like trying to hold my hands because I'm just shaking. Wait, what, what job were you doing at the time? American Cancer Society. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. right. I was a senior manager for, uh, you won't know where this is, but from Elk Grove to Merced. So it's about a three hour, you know, cities and 25 cities in between. Mm-hmm. So she was very kind. You know, she called and got me an airplane. There's no way I could have even made a phone call. No. My daughter called, said, can I come and I'll fly back with you? Because I was just such a mess. But 
she got me a ticket. I rode on the little bus, right, to go to the airport. And I was just out of my mind crazy. And the guy was like, it's your stop. Get off, you know. And I just was out there. So thank God for him. He helped me get off. And then I um, just cried, 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 cried. And I think about the two men. I had the last seat on the plane. So I'm right, like got the last seat and I'm between these two businessmen and I'm just bawling. They don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do. So well, fuck those guys. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like me on a plane. Like I literally, <laughs> anybody that's sitting next to me, they're mine for the ride. I make them hold my hand. I cry every single time. There yeah. was only one guy that told me to shut up basically. Like, <laughs> enough already. That's it. I mean, obviously, yeah, he was like, can you not? And I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to need the manifest for that flight because I'm going to need that guy's phone number. (laughs) I know. I love how I'm like, oh, yeah, I can totally relate. I suck at being on a plane. I'm like, it was pretty much the same thing. Like, fucking shut up. No, I mean, you I'm very self-conscious. Like, I don't normally do that. And I'm just like, sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. So I got off the plane just in time before the press conference happened. Keep in mind that I didn't know who he was. Right. He had a mask. So I'm like Mm -hmm. freaking out. Is this my dad's best friend? Is this someone I babysat for? I am going to now see the face (sighs) of the person that did this to me. Oh, wow. So that was really scary. Mm -hmm. And then when they showed him and he's just this fat old dumpy grandpa, I was like, I don't know this person at all. Uh, But from there, you know, began my journey to survive in the fullest sense. hmm. I feel like before I was surviving day to day. And then after he got caught and I got support, Mm -hmm. and I can talk about that, then I began to survive fully and become who I am now because I was not like this before. Wow. When you look back on the years before that, did you feel like you were aware that you were surviving day to day or was it something like later you're like, oh, actually this is surviving? Yes. Second one. Okay. I had PTSD, didn't know it. So I am sure I had a lot Mm. of like, wow, did you see what crazy Chris just did? Like an example, I had a job. It's my husband's favorite story, but it's kind of serious, you know, in a way, but it is funny. So okay to laugh. I'm at this job. My dad had just died, which... I'm not glad my dad died. I don't know that I'd be talking about this if he was still alive. Oh, sure. Because of your conditioning. Yeah. 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 So I would have to hide it from him or something, but went back to work and it was way too soon. And the PTSD that I didn't know I had was like going crazy. And so I was on a conference call and they were like putting the the screws in. I I don't know if you guys have ever been on conference calls, but hate conference calls because it's just a trying to catch you not doing your job thing. And I just snapped. So I, I told them, hold on, put the phone on hold, got my purse and my jacket, told the receptionist, I'll be back later. And I am the director of the school. I'm the president of this big school. Yeah. And I walked out and I never came back. Damn. I love that. God, just, <laughs> just adds to your bad bitchness. That's my husband's favorite story too. Yeah. Just throw a fucking match. You're like, <laughs> just leave. Yeah. I love that. Except I didn't have a job. Then there was that. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that, that yeah. <laughs> and those are the things I think with like PTSD is we're very reactive. Mm-hmm. People are very reactive yeah. and, and we don't think about what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. It's all about, I have to do this right now. And 
Yeah. Sometimes it kind of screws you. Well, so after things moved fairly, I mean, fairly quickly compared to decades of not knowing, right. but from when he got caught to connecting with other survivors to starting to just really advocate for yourself and others up until giving your impact statement. Now, what was that path for you? That was uh, the path to healing. So here's what happened. Mm. So we were at home, you know, after the press conference, Steve and I were sitting, my husband in the backyard. And I'm pretty sure we each killed a bottle of wine. I did not want to be inside the house. I needed to be, so we just have chairs outside. And he used to work for the county. And I was like, all these years, I just wanted him to be dead. And mm. like, he's alive and captured. Like, it just blew my mind. And I felt so much gratitude for Anne-Marie Schubert, Paul Holes. I mean, everyone who made this team to make sure that he did not live, you know, he, he had just retired a month before. So they totally screwed his retirement, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I would really like to talk to Anne-Marie Schubert and tell her, thank you. Yeah. So we were able to call her office and she was like, yes. And think about this. This man has just been caught horrendous guy. And it's that day after. And she said, yes. And I was like, wow right? Because we have an arraignment coming up. There's all this stuff. So I went out and I got, uh, I bought 42 roses from Trader Joe's and I put a big old vase, one for each year that he had not been caught. Oh, wow. And we went to our office and I gave those to her and swear to God, all I did was cry. Mm. And she just sat with me. And then I, thought, I said, okay, like, <laughs> Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye. Like we didn't, I don't think we really conversed at all. I just cried. Yeah. But I need, I think I needed that cry, you know? So the next day was the arraignment and in this huge room, big conference room, there were all these people. So we all went like an hour, hour and a half beforehand, the victims and their families mm -hmm. who wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And so walking into that room was crazy because I'm like, we've never heard of any victims. We know they're there, but we've never seen one. No one's ever spoken about it. And now this room is full of people. Like he was at her house and her house, her house. Like I'm seeing them right in front of me. And that was like a huge eye opener to the, when you say 50, it sounds like a lot, but when you look at that, it's like huge, right? The families of people that have been murdered were there. Did, did being in that room, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about it for so long, but did being in that room with all those people validate you in some way that, you know, your experience was concrete and, and real? Um, it more triggered me. Mm. It was so overwhelming. It was more like, so we're sitting there. The whole experience was just like out of a, out of a movie or something. So we're all sitting there and there's different people talking and then people are asking questions. And when we were walking out to go to these like secret vans to take us into the jail, because the paparazzi, you know, everybody's there. Reporters are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not safe to walk out there. So we're all getting put into vans and the victim advocate, she said, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, don't I look okay? And she said, no. Oh. you look not good. Thanks. Her name is Marsha. I love her because she's like another person that just says it how it is. Right. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So we got in the vans and we drive to the back of the jail and go in through these secret squirrel doors. And we go into the room where the arraignment's going to be before anybody else. Mm. But it's full of reporters. Like it's just click, 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 click. Just the whole experience. So overwhelming. I was wearing a polka dot shirt, jeans and cowboy boots. Cute. So cute. And the reason I say that is after that arraignment, 
I just throw the shirt away and I will not wear polka dots anymore. It was that traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. And then right after that, you know, I told you I work for American Cancer Society and I was doing uh, Relay for Lives and I was taking over for one because the person couldn't do it. So right when I got home from there, I had to quickly change my clothes and go down for a 24 hour event to support cancer survivors. So that whole thing was completely on autopilot. Wow. I think. Yeah. It was a lot. I could imagine just being so on autopilot, you don't even remember the event or like chunks of time during that, mm-hmm. you know? No, I remember because at these events, you always have people complaining. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had to be on it because yeah. I had to deal with everything that was going on. But I, oh, but you know what? I will tell you this. The next day after everything was done and we were cleaning up and there was a big pile of trash left and somebody was complaining about something else and I did lose it then. I, I mm-hmm. cussed them out. Good for you. So I did save it all up yeah. for the very end and then I quit after that. God damn. That was my last day at American Cancer. You're so awesome. I fucking yeah. love that for you. I did. <laughs> Fuck you and yeah. I'm out. <laughs> oh, that fucking gif of Lucille Bluth. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> Were you, had you had a PTSD diagnosis at that point or was that part of you putting shit back together after his capture? I never had any counseling. I never had any support. We couldn't talk about it. So you're just on your own to figure out what you need to do. That happens a lot, even today. You know, if if you don't feel safe to talk to anyone, you don't. doesn't mean it stops. After that, I was completely falling apart and I ended up getting um, the victim compensation fund. I don't know. I'm sure you guys have one of those. Uh, They actually paid for our trauma therapy. Mm -hmm. And I found this amazing trauma therapist. You know, we went through everything and there's all new techniques now. EMDR, brain spotting. It's not like, tell me every little thing that happened. I don't think she ever asked me to do that. It's like, let's deal with what you're feeling Mm -hmm. right now. So if I came in and said, hey, I have this horrible nightmare last night, we would work on that. Mm. And then it desensitizes you so that you can talk about things the way I'm talking about things. But there was this one lady who just bothered me. She was trying to sell her books, like impact statement. She's holding up her book and she pissed me off so bad. And I don't know why I was so mad. She can do whatever she wants to do. She's a victim, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my therapist finally one day said like, why do you always bring her up? Like, I don't know. And she said the best thing that started me on my path now, she said, do you think it might be because she's telling her story and you're not telling yours because you feel like you can't and you feel like she shouldn't. Mm. And I was like, oh, so she said, well, maybe you should tell your story. And of course, I've got to go from zero to a hundred. So <laughs> I go on a TV at HLN and I do, I got it. I didn't like start little, I had to go big, yeah. but there was so, so much support. People were writing me the prosecutors, the district attorney, the community, all these people that I thought were going to alienate me and hate me were like loving me Ugh. and saying it's okay and, and sending me things and big hugs and mm. everything that I thought was going to happen didn't. Yeah. And that is why I decided to do my group. Yes. Because that's what the majority, I got lucky. I mean, I didn't get lucky that I was raped. Nobody's lucky. I'm not lucky that Joseph James D'Angelo raped me, but I am lucky that the support that followed mm-hmm. put me back on my yeah. feet. And so many women don't have yeah. that. So many men don't have that. Right. They are truly alone. And I yes. just thought I have to pay this forward. Yeah. And so in the impact statement, I made a promise 
to D'Angelo. Well, first, mm-hmm. <laughs> first I kind of talked about how he fucked up my life. Second, I talked a lot about what a piece of shit mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. Yes. Got that out. And then third, mm-hmm. it was like, but this story doesn't end here. It's going to keep going. And I am going to be there so that nobody has to feel alone. If they need a person, I will be there. You know, they have to find me, whatever, but I'm not going to stop. Fucking mm-hmm. ain't right, dude. What what you're speaking of, I'm I'm guessing, is that you'd started hosting monthly support meetings at your house mm-hmm. for survivors. And I wanted to mm-hmm. check in with you and to see if you were still doing that or how that's expanded. And then also, I want to mention your Facebook group, Sexual Assault Survivors, It's Time to Tell Your Story, mm-hmm. which is yes. an incredible group, just so full of support. Mm-hmm. It is. Tell, tell us about what's going on with all that right now. Okay, so the group is a private group. Mm-hmm. but not meaning that you can't join. It's just meaning when I say it's private, what I'm committing to is that each and every person that joins, I'm going to check them out Yes. before I accept them because this is a big thing for people to come out and tell their story and they need to yes. feel safe. Mm-hmm. So I started that and right now I think we're about 820 or something people somewhere in there. Mm. all over the world. We have United Kingdom, we have Australia, we have Nigeria, Canada, which just says this is not an isolated problem in the US. Mm -hmm. This is a worldwide problem. So anyways, I started that thinking that if nobody came, that's okay. If one person came, that would be fine. And then, you know, slowly but surely, because you can't put a commercial out there, you know, it's growing, but it's it's growing at, at a pace that helps. It's not overwhelming. You know, you go to a yeah. support group and there's 5,000 people in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can promise you anyone who writes will be answered. Mm-hmm. Anyone, whether it's a direct message, whether it's a message on the group, does not matter. No one will be alone. Then from there, I did the backyard group, Oh, uh, you know, and said, mm. you know, obviously it has to be in the area I live in, but I did have a gal fly from Illinois to come meet me. One of my administrators is from Australia. She flew out here to meet me. (laughs) And so we're just kind of, we're touching people, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. So the outdoor ones, I have speakers come. I've had a therapist, a district attorney, a prosecutor, someone who is going to be coming next year is had a special victims unit in Sacramento. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, just so they can see what is in our county. Like, I didn't know all this stuff until they came to talks. So now I can say, yeah, we have a very supportive crime accountable county. Mm, yes. I couldn't have done that before. So we stop in the winter because uh, COVID and stuff and can't fit them all in the house, but they'll start up again in April and they go April through October and people have a chance to tell their story. Mm. If they want to, yeah. we always say, would someone like to tell your story? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. I had a shed that I painted. I have to send a picture. It was very cool. It's like a yeah. a journey tree and it was an old shed. So I painted it and then made this big tree on it and people could go paint Aww. like one is like a yeah. face with the X over the mouth, like feeling they couldn't talk mm. or a bird trapped in a cage. But also there's a picture of a bird flying away from the cage because they found their freedom, you know, things like that. They could write quotes. So that was really cool. And then we had to take our shed down because we had a pool built. So that shed doesn't exist anymore, but I've got pictures of it. Mm. Oh my God. I love that so much. (laughs) I'll send it. You guys will like it. It's really cool. Yeah. Maybe you could do a tattoo of it. 
Fiverr come to your town, you're you're giving me that too. I will do it. Yeah. I would love it. I'll be like, Chris Pedretti. You'd be like, Chris is coming for a shitty tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) I only have one tattoo, so I take him seriously. That one was in remembrance of my mom when she passed away. But I would definitely Mm, do that again with you. Anyway, so we had a police detective come out and talk. And from there, that's what opened up mm-hmm. my speaking because she asked if I would come talk to her detect or her uh, baby cops, the rookie cops who just, you know, graduated. Ah. Baby cops, brand new, shiny faced. <laughs> yep. Yep. Not, you know, because they got eight these- pounds, six ounce baby cops. <laughs> Exactly. And they have these implicit (laughs) biases going on. They don't know. They just know how they've been raised. Right. So they needed to Mm -hmm. kind of hear. Mm -hmm. And then now once a month, I actually do detective training that, you know, I've already mentioned talks about our, first of all, hear my whole story. Because for a cop who doesn't know any different, they come, they take your report, they're done. No, no. I want to introduce Mm -hmm. you to this lifelong journey that you are the very, very first person that we're speaking to. Yes. And how important you are, whether they continue that journey, whether they turn around and walk the other way, what are some things that you can do to, you're actually partners. You both want the bad guy. So yeah. you need to treat them like a partner. Yeah. Them. So true, those kind very of true. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. And then from there, I've started doing conferences. So now I still do my group, but I feel like I continue to pay it forward that I can share my experience to people that it might help. And here I am. Oh, what a goddamn angel you are. You are. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're both just like, I'm going to have to cut out so many of us going, oh, I know. Mm. <laughs> like, oh my oh. God. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you've done with it and the, the good that you've done and, and it will continue to do because that'll get passed on from other people to, to more people and help, you know, people support other people. And it's, it's just incredible what you've been able to do with Thank you. just like using your resilience and your strength and your heart that you have for and other people. Cause you didn't have to do all that. Yeah. I did have to do it. I really did. Oh, it's only been like, what, four or five years since 2018? Yeah. How many years? Is that? And I you know what? I, I do want to add that <laughs> is there was a lot of heavy lifting. There was a lot of tears. Mm. There was a lot of, you know, it wasn't easy. But the upside to that, you know, your trauma is going to live in you as long as you let it. But once you say enough, it's always going to be there. It's never like gone. I still have triggers. I still, you know, but the minute I made the decision to say, I am done with this, I'm going to deal with it now. I'm done running away. I'm done denying. I'm done seeing a different view of the world that isn't even realistic and decided to go forward. Yeah. It only took two or three years. And I know that sounds a long time when you're actually going through it, but Versus 42 years. Yeah, dude. Shame on my parents for not getting me right into therapy. You know what I mean? Like if I could have had such a different, different life, but I'm happy. I'm happy where I'm at. And I just want to share um, one more thing about the group. Was two stories, actually. There was one lady, she was in her 60s and she had never told anybody what happened because it was a family member. And she came to a few of our meetings And then one day she called me and said, can I just come over and talk to you just one-on-one? You know, I I do want to share this story, but not in front of a big group. Like, absolutely. You know, so she came over, we had iced tea, whatever. And sadly, about a month later, she died. She passed away. Oh, wow. And I was so grateful that she had the opportunity 
to leave this behind and not take it to the grave with her and that it wasn't mm. a secret anymore and that mm. she was able to see this makes me teary like like ugh. yeah that's what it's about is nobody should have to take that with them something that's not even theirs yeah. yes you know it happened to them not because of them it wasn't their fault mm -hmm. and but they're spending their whole life hiding it. And um, there was another lady who waited 61 years before she shared her story on the site. And she said she just felt mm. so free. I waited 42 years. She waited 61 oh. years. Like, it's just so long. And I guess my plea is no one out there, if you are a victim and you haven't told anyone, it's not your fault. You can tell someone and you can be anonymous, you know, and telling your story doesn't have to mean that I'm going to sit down and, hey, Gabe, listen to every single thing I have to say. It doesn't have to be that. It could be journaling. It could be drawing a journey tree on your shed. It could be art. It could be a tattoo. It could be so many different ways of beginning that journey and expressing your pain and accept, and this is hard, and accepting the fact that it was not your fault ever. That's hard to accept when it's been driven into you for so many decades. Or if you're a young girl, let's say you're 20 and you hold it in for, you know, 10 years. I mean, that's a big part of your life. Is, and so it's, yeah. we're very, uh, our rape culture just cancels us out. And I feel honestly, and this is my crusade that one voice is easy to cancel. A lot of voices mm -hmm. when we can feel brave enough to speak up, we'll change this. They can't cancel us. As long as we're talking, they can't shut us up. Yes. Right. And then other people hear it. And then we grow and we grow and we grow. Chris Pedretti, <laughs> I, I could flip a fucking car over right now with how <laughs> pumped yeah. you've got me. If I if you were right in front of me, I would get oh, down on oh one God. knee and propose to you. I would do it. <laughs> I would accept if my husband didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would pull the adoption papers out of the backpack that I brought with me and have you sign them. Awesome. I could have a new mom, a new wife. And, <laughs> and I also, I do want to say one more thing about you two. I love oh. you guys. Oh, I do. I love you so much. And we went to, uh, Steve and I, we were somewhere on a trip that we took an airplane to and I made him listen because we had lots of driving and I made him listen to every one of your things uh -huh. that we could fit in. And then like the next day we get in the car, he goes, is there more? Oh, and really? it's just hundred percent. Yes. And when I told him I was doing this today, he's like, oh, the show you love? Like, yeah. He's like, oh, all right. I'll keep the dogs for you. Oh, Steve. <laughs> oh, Fucking Steve. Steve. Top notch. But what I love, <laughs> what, what is really attractive to me about your show is it's not recapping the episodes. It's your humor. It's the humor where you can <laughs> dog tuts or this or that or whatever, you know, or, or uh, yeah. I don't know. Who is it? Daddy Cragen. Is that who it is? Who? You guys make up a new name for him every time he's in his office watching through the bubble. No. Oh, the, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other side of the glass. Yeah. It's those things. And um, it's not that I think rape is funny, but mm -hmm. I do think it depends on the way you look at it. And there is humor. And when there is humor, not about, wow, you know, not obviously about the really hard parts, you know, but about the things that happen around it, about the communities that we live in, yeah. about the stupid things that people say or look and, and it just feels good to laugh. 
You know what I mean? It feels good to laugh. And I would be curious of how many of your listeners kind of have that background, you know, maybe different, whatever, but it feels good that it's not such a secret. I love listening to you guys. It's just, it's refreshing. I'm not going to sleep. It's not so serious. It's not dun dun. You know what I mean? It's funny. (laughs) I like funny. Yeah. You know what? That's why I wrote you. I love you guys. And in fact, if you guys have ever noticed that I've never changed our the subject line, love, love, love. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, you, Today I, did, I, I never like, change it because that's who you guys yeah. are. Like, oh, I love, Aww, love, love dude. Them, so I just don't oh, change it. Thank you so much. I mean, <laughs> and we need to like just throw that energy back at you. We, I mean, we were so pumped to talk to you. We we're like, can we, can you believe no. this? fucking lady wrote to I know. us about this shit like this is crazy we gotta talk to her i was talking about it last night to some random guy yeah i was like this fucking bad bitch wants to talk to us i don't know why and he was like i don't know either because he didn't know who i was i was like it's insane but well i don't know this bad bitch wants to talk to you bad bitches <laughs> you know what when you were talking about the svu um Obviously, we're not making fun of rape or whatever. I actually, no. I was supposed to go on a date with this guy and he was like, oh, what podcast do you have? And I was like, oh, it's just a stupid thing with my friend. Everybody hates us. I don't know. And <laughs> I, um, I was like, it's a like a comedy podcast about SVU. And he was like, wow, that's fucked up. And I was like, do you really think that I'm like, what? You think I'm like, no, what are you talking? Anyways, he like yeah. totally like blocked me. And I was like, holy shit. I'm like, this guy thinks I'm like, <laughs> it was wild. And I'm like, I'm getting a dog. Wow. Well, maybe, maybe he's a rapist. Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's a fucking rapist. Maybe, maybe you dodged a bullet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that shit was dark, Chris. It was funny and it was dark. <laughs> all right. Well, Chris, I mean, again, we can't say how much we appreciate. Um, we can't at all. We can't tell you that. No, we can't say enough how much mm-hmm. we appreciate you giving us your time and talking to us. And I came in with an expectation of what I was going to hear your experience be. And mm-hmm. and there was so much more to it. So just being able to talk to you and hear that from you was incredible. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Oh, you are so welcome. And, you know, just like when I started my group, I'll say the same thing. If even one of your listeners can take what I had to say to heart and feel better about sharing or getting help, then this was the most important mm-hmm. intermish that you've done, in my opinion. Oh, it just takes yes. one. It absolutely uh, is. Boo doo boop boop. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll keep in touch. I'll continue to like send you little notes yeah. and stuff, but please do. Oh my God, we love you now. You didn't love me before? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, we did before. We but did now before. That we met you. I'm like, we're obsessed. <laughs> well, not yeah. Not, now we're obsessed, and we're like, oh my god, we've talked to her. We've seen her face while she's talking to us. We're all friends. Yes, we are. We're gonna show up in your backyard. I'll see you at Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, I have a great backyard for that. We got this big bar, lots of chairs, got a pool. We try to make it super comfortable so that when people come, that they can feel like yeah, they're not cramped or mm-hmm. they're not in positioning. You know, like a lot of what we've done in our backyard yeah. is to make people feel at home lots of different sitting areas so if they want a private conversation they can have one so i will give props to my husband he's completely joined in 100 and supports everything that i'm doing oh i love that 
How long oh. have you guys been together for? That's awesome. Uh, we've been married for eight years and been together about 15. So mm-hmm. he was the, he was my lucky one. Third time's the charm. He's really oh. good. Lucky him. Lucky me. Yeah. We don't know him, <laughs> but yeah, we appreciate you, Steve. That's- <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. A dream come true for me right here. I was so excited. Oh, it's a dream come true for us. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. <laughs> I want to thank Chris Pedretti one more time yeah. for sharing her story with us and for all the work that she does. All the work that she does. It's fucking crazy. Also, shout out to her husband. Was this his name Steve? Yeah, shout out to Steve. After we quit recording, he came in and said hi. And he's just a cool guy. Just a nice yeah. fucking good dude. So glad she's got him. And hi to your dogs, Chris. Woo! Hi. Also, I'm adding Chris's impact statement after the episode, so stick around and listen to that if you want to hear it. It's about 12 minutes long, and it's incredible, in case you needed more evidence that Chris is an amazing bad bitch. Next week, we got season five, episode 12, Brotherhood. Ooh, Benson Stabler trying to figure out who in the frat raped and killed their pledge master, and of course, there's going to be no one talking about nothing. Who in the frat? Who in the frat did this? That's what I thought you were- What in the frat? (laughs) All right, cool frat stuff. Awesome. Talk burner. Who cares? Ugh. Okay. Love you. Bye. All right. Love you. Bye. Your Honor, my name is Chris Pedretti, and thank you for allowing me to share the impact that Joseph James D'Angelo had on me the night he raped and threatened constantly to kill me. As the evening began on December 18, 1976, I was a normal 15-year-old kid. I loved going to school, having sleepovers, and going to church. It was one week away from Christmas. Our house was decorated, and I was having fun Christmas shopping for my friends and my family. My world was small, predictable, and safe. But by the time that night came to an end, my world changed forever. My safety was shattered as a masked man, D'Angelo, yielding a knife, told me he would kill me if I didn't do what he demanded. He raped me repeatedly, moving me in and out of the house after each time. He made himself comfortable in my home and he stole my family's personal belongings as I lay helpless or sat tied, gagged, blindfolded, and naked in the cold December night, waiting for what unthinkable act he would violate me with next. He tormented me, and he told me over and over again he would kill me, and I believed him. At three different times that night, I thought I was going to die. I sang Jesus Loves Me in my head as I waited, waited to die. The next morning, December 19th, I woke up knowing I would never be a child again. And although I was truly grateful to be alive, I also felt that I had died. I didn't understand what had just happened or why it happened. I didn't understand what kind of God would allow this to happen to me when I tried so hard to be good. 
I didn't understand why I didn't have friends anymore or why my parents told me to never talk about that day, the day I was raped, tormented, and accepted that it would be my last. I couldn't make sense of any of it. Try to act normal. Try to act normal, I would tell myself. But what was normal? I certainly didn't feel normal. Nothing felt normal. I was forced to begin an unending journey alone to try to survive in a world where nothing was as it was just hours before. So much had changed in such a short time. I no longer fit where I did before. And although I tried, I would not be a normal teenager again. The next year, because I no longer fit in, I changed schools three times. Moved to a new city, and I quit going to church. Because I was not allowed to talk about being raped, to get help, or to heal, I was forced to live my life like the rape never happened. Acting like it never happened required me to step out of my person, to leave my childhood behind, and to step into a life that wasn't mine. I struggled the next 41 years with extreme panic attacks, failed relationships, frequent job changes, unhealthy coping mechanisms, and few friends. I think it's incredibly ironic that D'Angelo only had daughters and a granddaughter. No sons, no grandsons. If I were able to address D'Angelo, I would ask him to imagine his wife, daughters, and granddaughter at 15 years old. Then, imagine them being tied, gagged, and blindfolded as they were being raped, tormented, and fearful for their life by an unknown masked assailant who held the power over their life or death as he raped them and threatened them for hours. I would ask him how he would have reacted coming home to the crime scene that my parents and my sister came home to. How would he be able to watch helplessly as they struggled to make sense of what they did to deserve such a devastating act of hate? how it would permeate the core of their very being. I understand that no amount of therapy can bring back those years to me the way they were supposed to be. D'Angelo stole my formative years. He stole my youth, my innocence, my faith, and my trust. Who could I have grown up to be? I guess I'll never know. And as I look at him today, I see a pathetic coward and a deplorable shell of barely human material. He tried to conceal his soulless being from others by becoming a husband, a father, and a grandfather. He used and manipulated his own family so that he could look like a regular guy 
as he enjoyed his malignant life once they all went to bed feeling safe in the make-believe world that he created. His family has been forced to walk a torturous and undeserved journey as they learned the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer's identity, Joseph James D'Angelo, her husband, their dad, her grandpa. D'Angelo has guaranteed his family will never escape the stain of his name and his infamy. These innocent people do not deserve to carry his humiliation, yet they have no choice. If I could speak directly to D'Angelo, I would ask him, do you feel any remorse for what you did to me? For the people whose lives you sadistically cut short? or for the years of pain to your victims and their family? Do you finally feel humiliated? Your secrets have been exposed. Your double life is over. The world, and I mean the entire world, knows who you are and what you did. You will forever be known as a repulsive coward who hid behind a mask of evil. The devil can keep you company in your prison cell as he gnaws away at whatever soul you have left, at whatever life you have left. It brings me great satisfaction to see you in your assigned orange jumpsuit, powerless and handcuffed in all aspects of your already miserable life. You hid in plain sight, but you are now visible for everyone to despise, loathe, and abhor. You are finally getting what you deserved all along. Understand, D'Angelo, there's not a prayer strong enough to save you. Your Honor, once again, thank you for allowing me to share how D'Angelo's burnt soul has invaded my life. Though I have found my way to a happy and safe life once again, D'Angelo deserves his sentence of life without parole in the most dark and lonely containment. If I had my way, D'Angelo would only be provided our impact statements as reading material for the rest of his days. D'Angelo must not be allowed to ignore what he has done for as long as he breathes. For decades, he lived free in the same neighborhood that I lived in, as well as many others. He was free while each of his victims and their families lived in pain, often nearby. Who knows how many times I passed him in the grocery store or sat near him at a restaurant, oblivious to the fact that the rapist who took so much from me was only a few feet away. There are parts of me that spent more than four decades alone, entrapped in a virtual hell that D'Angelo sentenced me to in 1976, from which I could not escape. I used to wonder why I was chosen to be his victim. It used to keep me up at night. It was the only question I had for him. Why? What could I have done differently to create a different ending that night? It is only since his capture that I have found freedom from his evil. I'm forever grateful for the support I have received through love and caring of my family and friends, through therapy, meeting and sharing experiences with other survivors, support from the victim advocates, and reaching out to other victims of rape that have long kept their silence for being for fear of being ostracized. Standing here today, 
The knowledge that D'Angelo will spend the rest of his life in prison for his heinous acts has ended my dark journey so that I may begin a new one. So where will this new journey lead me? This experience has taught me the importance of supporting those that have been sexually assaulted. I spent years, decades really, feeling shame and guilt for what happened to me. And yet it wasn't my fault. It was something that was done to me, not because of me. Through this experience, I have learned how utterly important it is to be able to express out loud in some manner, whether verbally or in writing, that the shame and guilt belongs to the rapist, not the victim. Most importantly, saying it out loud reinforces that we did not deserve to be raped. We did nothing wrong, no matter what the circumstance. The sheer act of stating it out loud to others who understand and have had similar experiences is liberating in a way that most cannot comprehend. Today, right now, I start my new journey. I've received overwhelming support from so many people. It's time to pay it forward. I hope to provide support to those as so many have done for me. It truly has changed my life. Thank you.